As those baskets are making their way around, you can open your Bible to Daniel chapter 3. We continue our study through the book of Daniel, a series called Hope in Exile, as God's people were wrenched away from their homeland in Israel and deported to pagan Babylon, we're looking at what God wanted to teach them, what he wanted to, to, to reveal to them about himself, and by the same token, what he wants to reveal to us about himself in our own day and age of spiritual exile. Um, about a month ago, I got a request from Children's Ministries and Shannon Pfeiffer. See, the, the kids in Children's Ministries are doing a fundraiser for one of our gospel partners, Haley Scott, who's um, one of our missionaries in China, and, and, and sort of the, 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 the enticement, so to speak, for, for kids to come raise money is that they would get to put a pie in the pastor's face, okay? And they said, well, would you consent? And I said, well, yes, of course, anything for children in world missions. Of course, I'll do it, of course. And so I, they even let me choose the pie, okay? It was key lime pie, of course, just my, my absolute favorite. And so little tiny eight-year-old Abigail Petcher won the grand prize. And she kind of strolls up to the podium, and I'm sitting there getting ready for the pie in the face. And, and I'm looking at this little girl, and I'm saying, this is going to be a kinder, gentler pie in the face. Okay, this is going to be so awesome. It's going to be like little, little cream on the nose and just kind of get a little, little key lime off the cheek and you know, eat it. You know, that sort of thing. This is going to be, this is going to be awesome. So I'm kind of waiting there. Then all of a sudden... Like a force of nature, okay? Like, like this woman was like, like hitting a topspin forehand, like with, with this pie arrived with extreme prejudice. Let me just tell you, like, like it was like it generated topspin. She came up low to high. This thing just sort of like creams me in the face. I'm kid you not, three days later, I'm picking sour cream out of my ear, okay? Or, I mean, like still, I did not see it coming. I did not see it coming. You know, in a lot of ways, in our study of Daniel, as we have left off where we were last week with Pastor Josh in chapter 2, we just don't see chapter 3 coming. It, it, it's, it's so abrupt, um, the, the focus, the shift, the tone. Because remember, at the end of chapter 2, God's grace and favor is all over Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember, God gave the interpretation of, of Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel, and Daniel revealed it to the king. He said, this is from God, and, and Nebuchadnezzar is like, whoa, this is amazing. He promotes Daniel to the number two position in all of Babylon. Okay? Daniel effectively ran the empire of Babylon, and not only that, he got to take his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and promote them to prominent positions in the kingdom. And, and chapter 2 closes, and there is just like incredible favor, incredible grace, incredible mercy, incredible success. In fact, at the end of chapter 2, we even have Nebuchadnezzar making some sort of statement of, of faith, some, of some sort of confession that, that he now recognizes that God of the Hebrews is the true God of true gods, and people should worship him. I mean, it's like, this is pretty cool. We're ready for some revival in Babylon. And then we get to chapter 3. And, by, and as we'll see in this text, Nebuchadnezzar has commissioned the building of a statue. And he says, all of you have to worship it. And by the way, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you were my favorites, but, but, but make no mistake, 
if you don't worship it too, I'll make you into giant s'mores, okay? Seriously, okay? This is, this is serious stuff. Unless you bow the knee, we just don't see this coming. We just don't see it coming. And some of us, life might feel a little bit like that. You know, we're kind of moving along. We're gaining some traction. Things are going pretty good, okay? And then wham, some sort of crisis, or disappointment, or tragedy, or suffering, something that we did not see coming for anything, sort of our pie-in-the-face moment. And when those things happen, okay, when when we have an abrupt pie-in-the-face, when we have an abrupt shift to everything is awesome too, you're about to go into the fiery furnace. This presses forward questions, doesn't it? It presses forward questions about ourselves, like, what did I do? Did I mess up? What, what's my responsibility? What's my fault? If only this, if I had done this, what if, maybe. But more importantly, folks, those seasons of crisis and exile and the fiery furnace and the pie in the face, whatever you want to call it, really press forward questions about God. And ironically, it's Nebuchadnezzar who was the one asking the key question of the whole passage. Okay, we're getting ready to read this passage in a second, but look at verse 15 just for a second. He asked it cynically, but it is the question. And he says this, Who is the God who will deliver you? Who is the God who deliver you? Have you, have you thought about that? You know, everyone on planet Earth has an answer to that question, whether you're atheist, okay, or Christian, rich, poor, Democrat, Republican, young, old, everyone looks somewhere for salvation. Everyone looks somewhere for something to save them. And and when seasons of trial and exile come upon us, what those things are that we've been trusting in are revealed. The, the, the curtain is sort of pulled back. The onion is sort of unmasked. And we see who it is that we've truly been looking to for meaning, for hope, for salvation. Now, the text this morning, let me say, is not complicated. Okay? It's, it's not tricky. It's not, in, in fact, it's so, it, in many ways, it preaches itself to which you might be saying, well, then what are you doing here? Okay, but, but we're going to try to work through it together. It's amazingly straightforward. There's two portraits that Daniel wants us to look at. There's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on one hand, and there's Nebuchadnezzar on the other. And each, and this is important, are purportedly worshiping the same God at the end of chapter 2. Okay? Both groups ostensibly paying homage to the same God of gods, Lord of lords, Yahweh. But, now listen, only one of their gods is real. Here's a provocative question for us. Folks, is your God real? See, we're all worshiping something or someone. But is your God real? Is, is, who is have you thought about this? Who is, who is the God that you are interacting with, praying to, seeking? Is the God you are worshiping and seeking the biblical God? Is it the God that's built upon the truth of his word? 
Or is it a God that you sort of concocted, that's distorted, or that's small to sort of accommodate however you've decided you've wanted to live your life in the first place? And here's what Daniel wants us to know. Only one of these gods can save us. Only one. And it's the God of the Bible. It's the God of his word. And so we're going to work through the text, okay, under the, under the title, Who is the God that will save you? We're going to read chunks of the text, and we'll comment as we go. Let's look at the context, verses 1 through 7, and we'll flash this on the screen for you as well. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar had made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Let's pray. Lord, this is a, as we work through it, it's a long passage. But Lord, it's a profound passage. It's meant not to give us three steps for spiritual success. It's meant to reveal who you are. And you want to wet our hearts to who you reveal yourself to be in this passage. So, Lord, we're praying that you would do that by your grace. Amen. Because Nebuchadnezzar ruled a vast empire. And it was probably half of what was then the known world. And when Babylon would come in and conquer a land, I mean, they were conquering people from, from all sorts of religions and backgrounds who worshipped various gods and any, it was just, it was like a theological goat rodeo, okay, is what it was, all right? And, 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 and that was fine. Babylon did not care what you did in your private worship. They could care less. If only you would pay homage to Nebuchadnezzar and the empire. If you acknowledge his ultimate supremacy, the empire's ultimate supremacy, you can do whatever you wanted in your own private time, in your own private life. Now, now, some would say that we live in a pretty tolerant, relativistic age where sort of anything goes. But in reality, we know, Four Oaks, that that is an illusion. Because as, as we can see, anything is allowed in the public square today except the distinctiveness of the Christian faith. Because the Christian faith claims to worship the true God. Okay, the Christian faith in our culture is just fine if we take a seat at the table, the round table. Um, no, no one's better than the other. We're all going on the same road to the same place, maybe by different journeys, a different paths. We're all heading to the same destination. And the, 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 the time that you immediately step out and say, no, 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 we worship the true God, that is at the point that no accommodation will be made. 
And guys, that is exactly the same thing that's happening in the text. Nebuchadnezzar's like, I don't care what you do over there, but right now, we're all pledging allegiance to the same cultural orthodoxy. So, so in order to sort of symbolically gather all of these people from all these different theological and biblical and pagan persuasions, okay, he orders that this statue be erected, okay? And, and it's put in cubits, but it's really about 90 feet high by 9 feet wide, okay? Our, our very trusty facilities manager, Kirk Tannis, told me this morning, it is exactly 53 feet from the floor to the highest point of the ceiling. So it's almost twice as tall as this ceiling, okay, and about nine feet wide, about as wide as, as this portion of the stage. This was like some crazy spectacular sort of monument. We don't know if it was of, of Nebuchadnezzar himself or if it was just um, a symbol of the, the might of the Babylonian Empire or some sort of um, you know, mixture of both. But he, had, he ordered this thing to be made of gold. And if you were here last week, you know that that is significant. Because when Daniel had interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream, okay, and, and remember, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of what? A statue. And its head was made of what? Gold. See? And the point of the dream was to tell Nebuchadnezzar, listen, Nebuchadnezzar, you've got a nice empire. You're doing a really cool thing here. Okay? <laughs> you've got it going on. But let me tell you, your empire is not going to last. It's not going to fade. It's not going to hit you on the, on the way out the door, right? Okay, it is, it is like, come on, man. You've got, the, you've got the Persians are coming after you, then the Greeks and the Roman Empire. And by the way, if that's not enough, God and his kingdom is going to show up at the end of the age and crush everything. So enjoy it while, you, while it lasts, Nebuchadnezzar, because it's not going to. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't hear any of that. He just hears golden head, I'm the top of the pyramid, I am number one, and he says, I'm going I'm to run that for all it's worth. And so he, he commands that this 90-foot statue be made of gold. And the idea was to parade everyone through okay, this sort of procession and prominent leaders and governors and rulers and those sorts of things all pay homage okay, to this, acknowledging that the one central unifying truth of their, all their lives was Babylon in general, and Nebuchadnezzar specifically. Now, what's interesting about these, these first seven verses, and I want to look there real quickly, is that Daniel, in sort of depicting the pomp of this occasion, is just oh so subtly noting how absurd it really is, okay? I mean, just think about this for a second. First of all, this is a statue erected out four miles, Jura, outside of Babylon. Hey, this is in the desert, okay? There is no, like, there is no porta potty Do you get what I'm saying? Like, they're dressing in their garb, okay? He's trooping all of them out there, and you know they're rolling their eyes, right? I mean, like, this is like an, uh, this is like an episode of The Office, okay, when Michael makes everybody go to the diversity training. They're all like, oh, brother, okay? Here we go. He, he's parading them all around, okay? And, and, and what's interesting is that notice in the text how often these phrases are repeated. Have you noticed that? 
He's like, it's like every time he comes to the instruments, okay, he doesn't just like say, and all the instruments, what does he say? The lyre, the this, the this, the this. I mean, if we were there, it'd be the trombone. You dig in the trombone? I like the trombone, okay? But our violin player was highly offended that I keep calling out the trombone. We have the violin player too. Anyway, pretty awesome, okay? And so it's almost like a Dr. Seuss book, okay? It's like, it's like Daniel's repeating these phrases over and over and over, and then this happened, and this happened. And the whole absurdity of the situation that we end chapter 2, and Nebuchadnezzar is saying, truly, your God, Daniel, is the Lord of Lords and the God of God. He's, he's the greatest ever. And here, we're worshiping something that was made. I want you to think about that. Daniel uses the word set up, okay? They set up the statue. They propped it up. He uses that phrase nine times, Okay? He, he uses the word made repeatedly. It's to, it's to note this idea that they're worshiping something flimsy, impotent. Okay? It's, like, it's like getting the little, little puppet fingers, right? And, and, and roll them around and we're all bowing down. All of this is just done in such a mocking tone to show how absurd this whole scene is. Okay? And so we, we, we can't escape the irony of this. But as absurd as it is, there is something really spiritually ominous going on. Because remember, at the end of chapter 2, it was Nebuchadnezzar of all people who made a startling confession. And here's what he says, Daniel 2.47. He says, truly, Daniel, your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries. That was chapter 2. But here we are, chapter 3, wham, pie in the face, not what we were expecting. He's making a gold statue. And we have to ask, what is up with this? What, what is going on? And see, and, here, and here's, here's where we want to begin to bridge what happened 3,000 years ago to what's happening in our life right here, right now, today. See, Nebuchadnezzar is just fine with God when he knew that it would materially benefit him. He was great with God if God was the one who gave him his kingdom and then let him live his life and do whatever else he wanted on his own time. See, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't looking for God to save him, okay? Because that would have communicated need and dependence and bowing the knee. And acknowledging that God is great and powerful and mighty. No, no, no. He wasn't looking for God to save him. He was looking for God to serve him. Because that's what idols do. They serve us. We serve them. It's this symbiotic, dysfunctional kinds of relationship. And there's something really important that we have to get from this. Four Oaks, listen carefully. You can acknowledge, and Pastor Josh wrote about this week, wrote about what I'm about to say this week in the weekly. He said, you can acknowledge the true God with words and not be saved. See, if, if, if God for you is one God among many, and he, he's, 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 he's great, Pastor Paul, I love God as long as I can domesticate him, tame him, put him in a box, cordoned him off with police tape 
keep him from intruding upon things that I really want to do. You need to know if that's the God you are worshiping or that I'm worshiping, we're not worshiping the God of the Bible. That God does not save. Let me ask you a question. Is the sermon every week, folks, your only biblical meal? Okay? Because, see, see, our thoughts of God, our worship of God, the God we're looking to save us is going to be shaped by something. Okay? And fundamentally, if that's not shaped at its core by the Word of God, the truth of God, then we are worshiping a God of our imagination. We are worshiping a God who, who we have conjured up to fit the context and contours of, of our life. And so I kind of look at the weekly sermon on Sunday as sort of like your hearty breakfast, right? Okay, so, so, so you've heard it before. What's the most important meal of the day? Breakfast, okay? That's why most of you eat junk. Anyway, it's the most important meal of the day. Start the day, but what happens if you eat breakfast but you don't eat anymore? You kind of look emaciated. You kind of look sick. You kind of look malnourished. You're not very healthy. Four Oaks, and make this, may this be a clarion call for us. Okay. Where do you feed daily, weekly, at the trough of God's word? See, God gets small when we get malnourished spiritually. God gets distorted, okay, when, when, when we are effectively not eating, okay, for seven days. We have to have a constant nourishment in our personal times, our quiet times, okay, of, of our community groups, of our Bible studies, our men's groups, our women's groups. Guys, if this, if this is your only spiritual meal of the day, if it's my only spiritual meal today, we are severely malnourished. And that just that's, impacts the way we view God, that, way, that impacts the way that we view ourselves. Let it be a, really call, a real call. What venues are you seeking out, are you partaking in, are you investing in to study the Word of God? Okay? It, it is, guys, there is no progressive revelation of God. Let me be really clear here. Okay? Our understanding and knowledge of God is not continually changing to comport with whatever societal circumstances we find ourselves in. The Word of God, the God we worship, is revealed definitively, finally, right here. Are you and I feeding there? Are we worshiping there? Are we studying there? Are we meditating there? See, Daniel... And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they worshiped the God that was revealed here. Nebuchadnezzar worshiped the God who just gave him stuff. And when he stopped giving, he stopped worshiping. That's not the God of the Bible. That's the context. Look at the crisis, verses 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree, now here comes the instruments again, that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So how far will Nebuchadnezzar go to ensure that everyone worships at the foot of this statue, i.e. the state? About 1,800 degrees worth. That's about how hot one of these kilns or burnaces would get when they were fired up to capacity. Now, as excavations, archaeological and otherwise, have been done in ancient Mesopotamia and Babylon, we discovered that what, what you know, we, we think of a furnace, what, is, what, what was this? Okay? Think about a railway tunnel that is blocked off at one end. So it was a huge, it was a huge space, a huge room, okay, big enough for a train to roll through. And they would block off one end, they would have a door or passageway or a window in the other, and then they would shovel the, the coal through that opening in order to, to, to fire up the flames. They would use it to, to, to make weaponry, they would do all sorts of other things. But they reserved it for incredibly cruel and unusual punishment. And so when it says in the, in the Hebrew, burning, fiery furnace, what that means in the Hebrew is it was really, really, really hot. <laughs> really hot. And, and when you said the words burning, fiery furnace, I've got to say that three times real fast, okay? It had a way of soliciting immediate obedience, didn't it? Okay? It's just like in the sound of music when Captain Von Trapp wants to call his kids to him. What does he do? He blows the whistle. Okay, blows the whistle, and everybody comes running immediately. And so when this music is played, the, 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 the Hebrew kind of denotes this idea that when people heard the music, when they heard the first notes of the music, they were flat on their face and prostate. You know, things became really serious then. It was all pomp and circumstances and foolishness up to this point. But when they heard the music and they connected that to burning fiery furnace, it was like Pavlov's dogs. They were on their face because that was a terrifying prospect. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't go there. And their audacity doesn't go unnoticed. Okay, look back at the text. It says that there were, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward. Understand that these were, these were the king's favorites at one time until who showed up? The Jews. Daniel and his friends. And they were given these prominent positions and there was professional jealousy and hatred. And they hated that these Jews had taken their place. And so they take this opportunity, they take this window to, to concoct a malicious plot. Now, when it says they declared to the king, and the, I'm sorry, look at verse 8. They came forward and maliciously accused that term. It literally means to eat the skin off the bones. See, they weren't just tattling. They weren't just telling on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who might get grounded and not get to play we that week. That's not what's at stake here. This was the equivalent of wishing upon them utter terror and ruin. Most of us are very familiar with the stories of the Holocaust as the Nazis came through Europe and occupied territory and they would round up the Jews and take them to concentration camps to be exterminated. And so many of these Jews, hundreds of families, if not thousands, would be hiding out. So we think about the diary of Anne Frank. She was part of one of those families. And if you were a native person and a non-Jew, and you knew where a Jewish family was hiding, 
and you went and informed upon them, you see what kind of serious business that was? That was wishing upon them utter devastation, ruin, and terror. And that's exactly what these Chaldeans were doing when they came and informed upon Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, one of the things that's really clear, and I said this text was really simple, really straightforward, it's very clear that their obedience at this point was leading them into harm's way. And I want to ask us a question, and this is contextual for each and every one of us, but the principle is distinctively true, and here it is. Folks, is there any place in your life or in my life where your obedience is costing you? Is there any place in your life where obedience is putting you in peril? And and I I don't mean physical peril necessarily. Is there any place where your obedience is costing you in work or in business or in relationships or with kids or with your children? You see, we have a hard time, like, when we sometimes as Americans, affluent Christians who we've defined spiritual success as everybody likes us and everybody likes our kids, but we still get to go to heaven, okay? As, as, we, as we define things that way, texts like these can be so harsh. They can be so hard, so cruel. We have a hard time resonating with it because if you want to pinpoint an idol of our age, Christian and non-Christian alike, it's this, it's safety. See, safety has a high cultural value for so many of us. Physical safety, it's a prominent issue in the elections. Relational safety, occupational safety, okay? financial safety. And can I, can I say something really provocative? Okay? Even if you said no, I'm going to say it anyway. Here it is, okay? very provocative. Our safety is overrated. See, our physical, temporal, physical safety for Oaks is not always God's chief concern. See, we have an eternity to be safe. You know that? We have an eternity to be in the presence of God. But on this side of heaven, what God is most concerned about is his worship. What God is most concerned about is the glory of his name. What God is most concerned about is the proclamation of his name to the nations and to the people who don't know him. So when we come across texts like this, we have to say, but Pastor Paul, it sounds like you're saying sometimes as God's people, our obedience will lead us into harm's way. And we're saying, yes, that is exactly what we're saying. And because there's something in us that, that just rubs or irritates or doesn't fully resonate with that is an indication, is it not, of how much we've drifted away from the God of the Bible who has clearly revealed himself. Guys, our obedience does not always mean physical harm. But we have to ask the question, where in your life, where in my life is obedience costing me that's the crisis and here's the crucible the heart of the text verse 13 
Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. Some of you are facing that choice right now. All, it's well and good if you, if you shirk obedience this way. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who would deliver you out of my hands? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Now listen to this, key three words of the whole passage. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times. It just means that as hot as possibly they could make it. Then it was usually heated. And he ordered some of his mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Because when you have a hard thing to tell someone, do you go digital? You know what I mean? Like, are you somebody who likes to text or Facebook or email hard news? Hey, what, when we do that, why do, and don't do that, by the way. Hey, why do we do that? Because it's easier sometimes to communicate that way rather than get in a room where there's relational tension and tell something hard to someone's face. Okay, that, that's, that kind of raises the stakes, doesn't it? Nebuchadnezzar knows this. These are his favorites. And it's kind of like, okay, surely you must have gotten the news wrong. Okay, let's bring them in. And, and they're well known, so we have, to, we have to make this very clear. Okay, It'd be highly unusual for the king to give a second chance in this kind of circumstance. But he, but he brings them in, and he is so certain, in person, looking at the fiery furnace, looking at me, there is no way they cannot bow. There is no way they cannot capitulate. And you can imagine the enormous pressure that they were under. And you can imagine, guys, there's, there's lots of reasons that they could not have bowed. If this was in our day and age, what are some of the reasons that we would give or that they could have given for why it was okay? God would understand if we just bow the knee. We might pull that whole public-private thing, right? Privately, I believe in God. I trust in him. But publicly, I show a different face. Because this happens with politicians all the time. Staunchly pro-life convicted religiously about their convictions in this area, but I'm going to put it away for the sake of the party and the sake of my position, public and private. We could, we could lean back on that. We might could say, God, 
you've elevated me to this amazing position of favor. Like, like, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego may have said, you know, God, I mean, God needs, Jews need friends in high places, right? Okay, he strategically positioned us. He's given us favor with the king. Surely, surely God is not asking us to forfeit that. There are lots of reasons they could not abound. Lots of reasons that we may be tempted not to bow. But there's one central truth that guides everything that happens at this point. It's found in verses 17 through 18. Let's read it again. They said, if this be so, this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Now listen to this. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These two verses are a great spiritual diagnostic for every one of us in here if we really want to know who or what we are worshiping. Three small words, but if not. Let me ask you a question. Folks, where is it hard? Where is it difficult? Where is it maybe even excruciating to say, for you to say, but if not? God Please change my child's heart, but if not. God, would you please heal my terminal cancer, but if not. Prayed with the man after the first service who's in excruciating, just debilitative pain, wrestling with this text. God, would you please take this pain away, but if not, I worship you. I love you. I entrust myself to you. What is your but if not that is just so, so hard to let go of? God, save my marriage, but if not. God, give me financial security, I beg you. But if not, I'll remain faithful and I will worship you. See, this is the litmus test of all litmus tests. And none of us, hear this for folks, are able to say, but if not, apart from the life-giving grace and eyes of faith that God gives us. To be able to see His goodness, not despite the fiery furnace, but in the fiery furnace. See, for the people of God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego their but if not is fueled by this idea. I don't want to fry in this furnace. This is not where I want to die. But there are higher stakes involved. God is magnifying his name. God is, 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 is proclaiming his name to all of these people who do not know him. God, you're using this circumstance to connect a people to you. Guys, the central truth of this passage is not that if you trust God, he will rescue you from the fiery furnace. Okay? That's not the moral of the story. 
They fully recognize He may not. The issue, is your God bigger than your but if not? Is my God bigger? Last section, and we'll tease this out a little more. Last section of the Christ, verses 24 through 31. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. The audacity. <laughs> then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. John Calvin, reformer, has something very in- interesting to note about this passage. He notes that God, there's an, any number of ways that God could have saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He could have extinguished the fire. He, he could have orchestrated, okay, through his, through his sovereign plan, through natural disaster. He could, he could have spared them from getting in the furnace at all. Okay? But instead, we have to ask God, what, you know, think about this. Because you can trust God and still be terrified. You know this? You can trust God and still be terrified. The fact that they were, can you think about this? They were bound. They were carried. As they got closer to the fire, you know they could smell it. You know they could hear it. You know that they, could, they, could, they, they heard the agony of the destruction of the men who were throwing them into the fire. They were tossed into the fire, and you know they were anticipating, what is going to happen when I land in this pit? Well, that's, why does God go through all this if he was going to save them anyway? I think, guys, it's an important spiritual lesson for us. Because God sometimes doesn't keep his people out of the furnace, but he finds them right in the middle of it. See, there's a, there's a fourth man who comes on this scene. And there's lots of debate about who this person is. And Nebuchadnezzar said he's an angel, but we don't necessarily trust Nebuchadnezzar's interpretive abilities, okay? Others, others have said, well, this is Jesus Christ, and it's the pre-incarnate Savior, and it could be. It's hard to know for sure. That's not the most important thing to note is that this is God's Savior. God is the hero. God is the one rescuing. You see, I think he didn't spare them from the furnace in terms of being tossed in because, see, 
Because everyone in here is at the furn- in the furnace at some point. Some of you are in the furnace right now. Some of you know, if I'm not in the furnace now, I'm going to be in the furnace soon. Some of you have been in the furnace for weeks, for months, years, decades. Because when you're in the furnace, whatever that furnace is for you, what do you see? Is it just smoke and fire and, and confusion and pain? Or do you see, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, the very presence of God? See, see my prayer for us as a church is we come to texts like this, that we don't Sunday schoolize them. We don't moralize them. Three steps to being spared from the furnace. Three, three steps to success in the Babylon that you're in. No, 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 no. The central lesson is what Nebuchadnezzar inadvertently stumbles onto when he says this. Okay? There is, there's no God who can rescue like this God. See, God does not always shield you from danger, poor oaks, but he always meets you in the middle of it. See, that's, when we talk about the gospel in Daniel, the gospel in Daniel is everywhere. See, the gospel is simply this, poor oaks. Regardless of whatever furnace you find yourself in the middle of right now, God has already rescued you. God has already rescued me by the fourth man, Jesus Christ. That's the God we worship this morning. That is the only God who saved. The only God who will save you. The only God who will save me is the one who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place, to go into that fiery furnace. So that when we find ourselves there, we will know that he has preceded us. And that he is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that will far outweigh them all. Because that's the central meaning of this table this morning. Jesus is the only God who can save. There is no other. But he's available to you. He's available to me.